Jesus, we've come together as a church body now, and I lay your will, Lord, in front of mine, in front of our team, in front of our own desires. And so if you want us to set up and tear down for another eight, well, the setup team said they'd do it. And um, so, um, Jesus, we want your help. We do. And we would love to have a place to get rooted and to call home and to expand ministry and opportunities. And we know that a building is not the goal. It's just a tool um, to help us to continue to advance your kingdom and purposes. And so, uh, but Lord, we trust your timing. And if it's not now, then we trust it. Uh, then, then show us that. Make it clear. Uh, if there's a better route, um, show us that route then and let that come through. And we pray, Father, for the right people to come around it. And we pray for your will to be accomplished. And Nothing can stand against it. And so, Lord, we're just submitting now to your will uh, for this property or another property. We just put it before you. But we really do, Lord, want your, your involvement in all of it, and we don't want to go without you. And so, Jesus, give us wisdom. And I'm grateful that your word teaches us that you do not withhold wisdom from those who ask it. And so, Lord, give us wisdom in Jesus' name. And uh, help us to uh, have the confidence um, in finances and all the things that require it. Um, help our church body to step in faith uh, and to move in the direction. When you call us to move, let us move in faith. When you call us to move, move us in faith. Move us with confidence and courage. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for that. Well, if you have sermon notes, uh, you can grab those out. And uh, we're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes. And um, so we're going to do a book study. I do not really know how long, a couple of weeks at least, uh, but I just felt uh, impressed to go through this particular book. And so we'll jump in and learn a lot of lessons from the books. We don't always do book studies, um, but I've got a lot of good feedback from, from some of you on our last book studies. So we're going to go through the book of Ecclesiastes. And I encourage you as I go through this um, whole series that you read through the book of Ecclesiastes. So I want all of you to open your Bible and read through the book of Ecclesiastes because I believe God's going to speak to you, uh, not just here, but throughout the week. What does he want to communicate to you through this book? Um, in 1993, there was a movie called Groundhog Day. How many of you remember Groundhog Day? I just, I'm just going to throw her on the, under the bus completely right now. I was talking with uh, Lindsay Andrews, who's our worship leader, his wife, and I just said to her in the lobby, uh, she's, I said, have you ever seen Groundhog Day? And she said, is that the one with Adam Sandler? And uh, I was like, wow, just dated me. Man, no, Bill Murray. And you could see on Lindsay's face, Bill Murray, like, you know. It just, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. If I hear you saying, wow, that means you're over 40. You're like me, but... Um, Bill Murray, you know, no, so Groundhog Day, it's a great, great movie, it's hilarious, funny, anyways, uh, he plays a character, in case you haven't seen it, Lindsay, in case you haven't seen it, um, <laughs> um, he plays a character that relives the same day over and over and over again, do you ever feel like that, you live the same day over again, and the premise of the movie is life has a way of repeating itself, and in one scene, uh, particularly, he's sitting at a bar, uh, Bill Murray is, and with a, another person next to him, and he says, what would you do if you were stuck in one place and nothing you did really mattered? You know, this is where he's at in the question. And the man next to him responds, that's pretty much sums it up, and that's where he is. But then the turning point in the movie comes when Bill realizes that nothing he does satisfies his soul, and he begins 
to love others more than himself. All of a sudden, he begins to take on a new uh, pers- kind of new way of living. That he begins to really focus more on others than himself. It's a hilarious movie, and and that's when he begins to find purpose and meaning in life. And so if you watch the film, I don't know of a better movie that represents the book of Ecclesiastes uh, than that film. It's a great representation of it. So maybe you want to watch it and help you see if you can extract some principles of Ecclesiastes as you read through it. So over the next couple of uh, weeks, we're going to go through this book. And I will tell you, uh, over the past few months, um, I felt a deep conviction by the Lord to teach on this book, and so I don't do it just because it seems to be uh, something to do. I really feel like the Lord really led us and is leading us in through this book specifically, and I believe He's inviting us to learn some valuable lessons from this book. And so I'm going to ask us one more time, because as we enter this book, I want to invite you with me on this journey through this book. And just ask God to show you whatever it is he wants to show you and teach you and that you can learn from it and extract. And so I want to pray together right now as we open up the word of God. God, I need your help. Every time I open your word, I need your help. I need your help in the teaching. I need your help in pulling out the principles, the things you want to reveal to us. And I pray, Father, Lord, as we open it, that our hearts would be open now, our minds, Lord. Um, Prep us to hear your word, to receive it with joy, and whatever it is you want to say, let it be done now. In the name of Christ, amen. All right. Ecclesiastes 1.1 begins this way. And again, if you have your sermon notes, uh, take those, or if you have your Bible or Bible app. These are the words of the teacher, it says, King David's son who ruled in Jerusalem. I'll give you a little background of this. Uh, the background of the book, and the author. So these are in your notes. King Solomon, uh, most attribute this writings to King Solomon for the two reasons I just stated. One, he's King David's son, and two, he ruled Jerusalem. And so King Solomon is likely to be the author. That's who most attribute it to, King Solomon. Uh, he's also the one that wrote Proverbs, in case you didn't know that, and Songs of Solomon. And so if you read through those three books, those are all authored by him. And King Solomon is both a wise and a wealthy man. And I'll take you back to 1 Kings chapter 3. And this is just a little context to who is writing it, when he's writing it, and all of that matters because as the guy is writing this, his, his DNA, how he is, how he lived, his circumstances, you'll see why. But look at 1 Kings chapter 3. We'll put it up on the screen. This is Solomon, the beginning of his leadership. He says, I will give you what you ask for. This is the Lord talking to Solomon. I will give you a wise and understanding heart, such as no one else has ever had. He says, and I will also give you what you did not ask for, riches and fame. No other king in all the world will be compared to you the rest of your life. So Solomon, we know, has become the wisest man who ever lived, that he's given wisdom by God, but he's also given fame and riches. I mean, he's got the whole package and this is King Solomon. But as he grew in wisdom and wealth, his heart began to turn from the Lord. So 1 Kings chapter 11, this is something else we can understand. And this all comes in the context of why this book is written. And as you read through the book, you might get completely depressed for a little while. It's a, it, it seems very hopeless, but it's actually not a hopeless book. And I'll show you that, of course. But 1 Kings chapter 11 tells us that something changed in Solomon when he got wisdom and wealth. And here's what it says in verse 2 of 1 Kings 11. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts, your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyways, not so wise. And this is completely unwise. He had 700 wives. 
and then 300 concubines if that wasn't enough, okay? And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. So his heart turns. His life goes in a different direction. In Solomon's old age, and that's important, he turned his heart to worship other gods, other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord his God and his father David, as his father David had been. So as a result of turning his heart away from God, God removed his hand of blessing from his life because you can't be blessed when you're in disobedience. And so I give the background as we read the context to who and when the author writes it because based on this reading, it's likely that Solomon wrote the book towards the later years of his life. And so if you can imagine a very wise, wealthy man towards the end of his life reflecting on his life, this is where likely the book of Ecclesiastes comes into play. And so when you read it, it's like we get a moment here to learn from one of the wisest, richest man to ever walk the planet. And he's going to tell you about the good and the bad and the things that he learned in his life. And so I just hope and pray that you too and me get to learn from his wisdom, his advice, and what he learned. And so I think it's applicable for all of us in the room today. Specifically, he had followed the Lord, then he turned away from the Lord. So he's been there. He's been with the Lord. He's been close to the Lord, loving the Lord, serving the Lord, but then he's been away from the Lord. Okay? And I can assure you, he would say, you do not want 700 wives. I'm confident that that is hopefully one you all, especially the men in the room, would go, yeah, yeah, I don't. That's good. Amen. All right. So a couple more things on the background of the book and the author. He refers to himself as the teacher. And this word teacher was one who would speak to an assembly. And this is important so you understand the writing style that he uses for the purpose of debating with himself in order to, uh, to arrive at a practical conclusion. In other words, so you ever had debates with yourself before? Please, all of you who talk to yourself like, just help me feel better about myself. You debate... All right, and so he's debating with himself. He's talking to himself through this in this letter, but he's also writing for an assembly of people. The word assembly is a Greek word, ekklesia, which we get the word church from, where you get the book Ecclesiastes. So the word Ecclesiastes in English is ekklesia in Greek, which means assembly. The point is, and this is where I think it matters to every one of you in the room, is that in this writing, this particular book, anyone can learn from it. This is a book for everybody. This is a book for anyone who's willing to listen. Paul wrote certain letters to certain churches and certain different people throughout the Bible, 1 Corinthians or Ephesians or different groups of people. This specific book is geared towards anyone willing to listen. If you're listening to the sound of my voice today, if you're willing to listen and read it, it's for anyone. Fantastic book, a lot of wisdom in it. Therefore, I'm telling you now, the invitation from the author is to listen in on his debate. That's what he's essentially doing. Listen in on the debate that I've had with myself, and you tell me if you agree. That's the invitation. Listen in, and then see where you stand on the topics that he brings up, and see if you agree. So verse 2, the teacher begins the debate. And here's where he begins, and you'll see this all throughout this book. Everything is meaningless. Now, all of the high school, middle school students are like, I know. School is meaningless. See, there it is. It's pointless right there. Homework, pointless, you know. All right. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. What do people get 
that's the word profit. What do they gain for all their hard work, all this exhausting hard work that you do? What do they gain? Work under the sun. So there's two key things that I want to bring out of that, a key word and a phrase in Ecclesiastes you'll find all throughout the scripture, all throughout the, the, the whole the, the text of the book. And the first one is meaningless. Meaningless. It's a Hebrew word, hebel. Sometimes you'll see it spelled H-E-V-E-L, but hebel. And it means vanity or vapor or smoke, something you can't grasp. You can see it, but it goes away. It's like a breath. You, you can't grasp it. Figuratively, it's something that's transitory. Um, it's not permanent, right? It, it just, it's, it, something's untangible about it. It's vain, he says, or really, I would say to you, it's unsatisfactory. And so my invitation to you as you read this book of Ecclesiastes, sees this, this man who's writing this as he's realizing that everything in this world cannot satisfy his soul. Now, the second phrase is under the sun. I don't know if you know this today, but even if it's cold here in Tampa, you live under a sun. No one lives above it. At least you don't. That's for sure. Right? You're under the sun. Now, in verse 13 in Ecclesiastes 1, he uses the same language, and he says, but he uses under heaven. So I want you to understand if there's an under sun, then there's an above the sun. If there's an under heaven, there's an above heaven. Do you understand that God is above the heavens? In the heavens, the heavenly realm. We're under the sun. So this is where he's beginning his point that everything is meaningless, specifically under the sun. And you will see under the sun all throughout this entire book, under the sun. That is the earth of which you walk on. Everything that falls under the sun, that's what he's referencing. So he's not talking about, this is important, he's not talking about what's above the sun. He's talking about what's under the sun, which, by the way, I'll give you the title while living under the sun, live above it. The title of today is just off of that right there. I want you to hear it one more time. While living under the sun, live above it. And I'll show you why. Okay, and what that means. All right, here we go. So he supports his debate about meaningless stuff under the sun, that everything under the sun is meaningless. And he'll support it, verse 8. Everything is wearisome beyond description, no matter how much we see. Now you invite and be inviting into his debate. No matter how much he sees, he's never satisfied. Can we just pause and go, yes, that's true? No matter how much we hear, we're not content. History merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. What's above the sun, there's new, because you get new bodies in heaven. But what's under the sun isn't new. <clears throat> Some people say, here is something new, but actually it's old. Nothing is ever truly new. Notice how trends come and go, and then usually return one generation discovers something they think is really cool and trendy and new and life-changing, only to have the older generation say, we already did that, right? I don't know if this is, I could be wrong. Maybe some young person can yell out at me right now and tell me, it looks like baggy and bell-bottom pants are making returns. Is that right? Is that happening? 
It's been done before, in case you didn't know. Um, and when you bleach your jeans and turn them backwards, that's been done before too, right? Crisscross, yeah. Remember that? Overalls, you know, with one hanging off, one on. Remember all, man, all kinds of stuff, I know. It's all been done before. Nothing's really new under the sun. This is his point. No matter how much you travel, it never satisfies. Oh, if I could just go see that man then, and then you go and you see that view, you see that land, you go to that country, and all to be forgotten one day by your own mind. It didn't satisfy what you thought it would. Tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of dollars people spend to travel to see things they think will satisfy, and it doesn't. This is his point. Then he goes on, and he begins to talk about how he seeks wisdom to satisfy the soul. Verse 11, we don't remember what happened in the past, he says. In future generations, no one will remember what we're doing now. I, the teacher, was king of Israel, and I lived in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to search for understanding and to explore by wisdom everything done under heaven. There it is, under the sun. I soon discovered that God has dealt a tragic existence to the human race. I observed everything going on under the sun, and really it is all meaningless. It's all hebel, like chasing the wind. What is wrong cannot be made right. What is missing cannot be recovered. He's saying anywhere we find human actions... We also find disorder and incompleteness. Not only that, but we also discover man, mankind's inability to truly fix them or fill what is lacking. Solomon was convinced that it was not possible for human effort to correct the deep and crooked flaws in the human psyche. We cannot be straightened by government, education, willpower, or human ingenuity the futility of human achievement is shown by his personal investigation. No human can solve this problem for my soul. That's what he's arriving at. Verse 16, he says, I said to myself, look, I'm wiser than any of the kings who ruled in Jerusalem before me. I have greater wisdom and knowledge than any of them. So I set out to learn everything from wisdom to madness and folly, but I learned that firsthand that pursuing all this was like chasing the wind. The greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increase sorrow. This is really deep teaching. I could spend a ton of time on this. But basically he's saying in searching for meaning and purpose, as he attained that, as he searched for that, as he attains more wisdom, it doesn't work. The more he learns, the more he realizes the little he knows. In fact, that's how it is in studying Scripture. Over 16 years of studying the Scripture, I can tell you the more I read it, the more I realize I don't know a lot. It just never ends. Your mind simply can be wise while your soul is in shambles. Can I say this to you? There are people who are the wisest people smartest people on the planet, but their soul is wrecked. This is where he is. That wisdom and knowledge doesn't satisfy the soul. 
The soul, in case you don't know, is your mind, your will, and your emotions. You have a soul because people can experience pain that's not physical. It's emotional. That is your soul. That's where your soul is. So who can satisfy this soul? This is what he's after. So he tries another route to satisfy the soul. He says, well, I'll say to myself, come on, this is chapter 2, verse 1. Let's try pleasure. Wisdom didn't work. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found this too was hevel, meaningless. So I said, laughter is silly. What good does it do to seek pleasure? After much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine. That'll work. And while still seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness most people would find during their brief life in this world. Oftentimes, we think that experiences will satisfy the soul. If we could just experience this, then our souls would be satisfied. Then we just try to chase experience after experience after experience after experience, and nothing satisfies. This is his point. Solomon tries to experience himself to happiness. And here's how he goes about, and I know none of you will relate to these next things that he tried to satisfy his soul, but this is what Solomon did, and you tell me whether or not you relate. Verse 4. So he did what no human in 2024 in the Land of Lakes, Lutz, Odessa area would ever think about doing. Because history does not repeat itself. Keep that in mind. I'm being a little... Okay, yeah, I know. Verse 4, I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes. Come on. Surely, if we just have that size of a house, it'll satisfy something in me. Yeah, but you don't know the house I have in my heart, see? I mean, the one that I have in my mind is going to satisfy. See, but you don't know where I live now. And if you knew where I live now, then you know the one that I want to live in will satisfy. No, you are wrong. It won't. This is his conclusion. All right. Pick up the pace for myself. Planting beautiful vineyards. Can you imagine the amount of wine? You know, I'll make my own, all right? I made gardens and parks. I mean, he had Disney in his backyard. Look, this is incredible. He's got all the money in the world, and he's got so much money. Filling them with all kinds of fruits and trees, it's incredible. He built reservoirs to collect the water, to irrigate my flourishing groves. He bought slaves. I mean, he bought people, and I'm not... He's not, we're not talking about slavery, okay, he's not condoning, but in this time, in this context, he's like, I have power, I've got employees that do all the things for me. I mean, they serve me hand and foot. If I could just get someone to clean my house and somebody to cook dinner every night, oh man, that'd be amazing. Well, he had it. That's what I want you to see. Both men and women, others were born into my household. I also own large herds and flocks, more than any of the kings who lived in Jerusalem before me. I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasures of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers. I mean, you're 
pretty rich when you hire a band to sing you a song every morning when you wake up. That's fantastic. I would love it. Andrews, I want to hire you just sing to me when I wake up, you know? Wouldn't that be incredible? You know? Both men and women. And then he had a lot of, evidently, they were really good-looking concubines. You know, like hand-picking them. I had everything. Come on, man, watch this. Everything a man could desire. So the only thing that he left out was jet skis. I was like, you've got to have a jet ski, man. <laughs> a really awesome boat, you know. You know what I'm saying? Maybe a motorcycle. Come on, like, I know. He didn't have that. But if, he, if that was back then, he'd have it. He had everything a man could want. Gosh, he had it all. And then he says in verse 9, So I became greater than all of those who lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take. <laughs> I denied myself no pleasure. I mean, whatever I felt like doing, I did it. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward in all my labors. That anything I wanted, I would take. Anything I wanted, I bought it. Verse 11, but as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so pebble, like chasing the wind, never satisfied me. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere, he says, under the sun, right? So he says in verse 17, I came to hate life. Because life, everything, everything done under the sun is so troubling, everything is meaningless, like chasing the wind. It wasn't that he wanted to take his life. He was disgusted with his life. This is not a suicidal thought. I'm disgusted at the vanity of life under the sun. Nothing can satisfy me. Satisfy me. I've tried everything. And it doesn't work. So verse 18, he says, I came to hate all my hard work here on earth, for I must leave to others everything I've earned. And who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish? Yet they will control everything that I have gained by my skill and hard work under the sun. How meaningless. So I gave up in despair, questioning the value of all my hard work in this world. Some people work wisely with knowledge and skill, then must leave their fruit of their efforts to someone who didn't work for it. <laughs> that stinks. This too is meaningless, a great tragedy. So what do people get in this life for all their hard work and anxiety? Their days of labor are filled with pain and grief. Even at night, their minds cannot rest because all they do is think about their jobs and what has to get done and all the work and all the bills and everything else. It's all hevel. You know what he's saying? You work so hard and then you leave it to people who you hope will be wise, but you don't know if they'll be wise or foolish with what you leave them. 
which is incredible to me because people will spend their whole life trying to live a massive legacy to their children or children's children and say, ah, I did it. But when you're dead, they go to Vegas, they put it on one bet. And that's what you work for. One moment at a craps table. Right? I know. This is his point. Now, some of you who are older now, you're like, I'm spending it all. No money for my children. Right? (laughs) We're going to tap out at zero. Leave you with nothing. Man, it's meaningless. What's the point? This is his whole argument. He's kind of in this place, what do I do? And it's not just money. Look at this. Think about this. Think about all the conversations you've had with your children or maybe was had with you. Think about all the parenting conversations. Come on. All the advice. Think about it. All of those conversations. He's saying, man, I spent so much time passing on wisdom that I don't even know if they're going to use later on in life. It's exhausting, it's hevel, it's pointless. Stop giving your kids advice. They're not going to listen anyways. That's his whole message. No. He's just saying nothing satisfies. He's certainly frustrated with it. He's trying to arrive at a conclusion, what do I do with all of this now? Then at the end of chapter 2, Solomon arrives at his first conclusion. There are six conclusions he'll find in Ecclesiastes. This is the first conclusion he arrives at. As we're listening to his debate, here's where he arrives in conclusion. So I decided there is nothing better than to enjoy food and drink, to find satisfaction and work. Now pause. Solomon is not saying something that people have taken completely out of context here and try to use this as a reason to indulge in drinking alcohol all you want and, and eating as much as you want, which is gluttony, and saying, well, eat, drink, and be. See? This is where it comes from, in case you didn't know, And that is a completely false teaching from what he is saying. He is not saying eat, drink, and die for, you know, life is short, right? Life is short, so YOLO, you know? (laughs) You're laughing because some of you are like, yeah, yeah, YOLO. I just told my friend that yesterday. YOLO! You know? Which is not even true. You live for eternity, So, you don't really live once, you live forever. And what you do now determines, okay, so, anytime somebody tells me YOLO, I always correct them and say, no, you actually live forever. You? Yeah. yeah. Evidently, I know where you're going, and we'll just move on. So, (laughs) okay, it's a great opportunity to present the gospel right there. So, 
Solomon is not advocating eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's fatalism. See, then the end point's death. Eat, drink, be merry means no point of life, no purpose, no meaning, eat up, drink up, die. That's fatalism. That's not faith. He's not advocating fatalism. No, because of the next line. So I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. In other words, everything I have is from God. So my life is in gratitude for whatever he bestows upon me. Everything is from him. For who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him? He realizes that life ultimately without God is meaningless. If you do not have God in your life, you have no life. No meaning, no purpose. This is what he arrives at. Summary of chapter one. Wisdom, write this down, apart from eternity is meaningless. What's the point of wisdom without eternity? An eternal perspective. That's what he tried out, it didn't work. In chapter two, it's about pleasure. Pleasure apart from eternity is meaningless. That was his summary. Two conclusions of Ecclesiastes that we've already arrived at in our reading of chapter 1 and chapter 2. Number one, everything under the sun is temporary and does not satisfy. Nothing under the sun is eternal. Everything that you see will rust and fall away at some point. It will not be here forever. Every house that's built, every car that's purchased, every watch, every jewelry, Every ring, at some point, will fade away. It's temporary, and none of it satisfies. Because you've never seen enough, you've never heard enough, you won't travel enough, you won't earn enough to satisfy your soul. Number two, without an eternal perspective, everything is meaningless. To make it a little stickier, Without heaven, it's all hebel. Without a heaven, what's the point? This is his argument. So why nothing under the sun can bring us satisfaction? Why? Why is it that nothing under the sun can bring you satisfaction? And this is where the revelation comes. So pay attention. Please lean in on this. Why is it true for your life and my life that nothing under the sun satisfies our soul? He gives the answer in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And here's what he writes. What do people really get for all their hard work? I have seen the burden that God has placed on us all. Yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. Very important line. He has planted eternity in the human soul. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from the beginning to the end. 
Solomon had been living his life under the sun. As if what happens above the sun doesn't matter. See, a, a sinner can't enjoy what he works for because he's lost what he longs for. When Adam and Eve were in the garden and sin entered the human heart, a separation occurred from the human soul. We were separated from the one thing we were created to be a part of, God, to be with God, God to be with us, and we in Him, in constant place of His presence, of holiness and rightness and goodness and perfection, righteousness, the whole thing, love, no death and no pain. But when sin entered the human soul, a void happened. And God intentionally, in his goodness, as he does so, puts eternity into the human heart so that as humans go about living under the sun while waiting upon his revival, will find no satisfaction in the things that they long for. Because the one thing they long for the most is him and will only be found in him. And he made it that way because you were created for the purpose and the purpose that you were created for was to glorify him and so if you try to glorify you or anyone else or any other thing it'll never work because you were made to worship a creator the only reason why there's nothing new under the sun is because we're creation we're not creators there's only one only the creator can make something new you cannot So he put a void in your heart and in my heart. And as long as you chase everything under the sun, you will find that towards the end of your life, like Solomon, nothing satisfied my soul. Only God can do that. This is the lesson that he writes. Jesus actually said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, I give you rest. You cannot find peace and comfort and contentment in anything but me, Jesus said. Try it. It won't work. All of us have. You think joy and peace and happiness is found in some experiential thing. No. It's only found in Christ. In Him. And this is how you're designed. That's how you were made. St. Augustine said, Our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. The eyes cannot be satisfied until they see the hand of God, and the ear cannot be satisfied until it hears the voice of God. The main point of Ecclesiastes as we study this book is this. Life without God is no life at all. Jesus actually supports this statement later on in his life. He says, What does a man gain if he Gains the whole world, yet loses his soul. You want your soul to be healed. You want to find real peace and joy? Be with Jesus. Walk with him. Talk with him. Live for him. It'll satisfy your soul. Or 
You could do what Solomon did. You could just work your butt off, try to get a lot of money, and end up empty. Passing on all of your hard work to somebody who misuses it and abuses it. Or today, you could say, I want my soul satisfied. I want to live for the Lord. I want to let Him come in. I want to find peace and contentment in Him. Most of you have tried it. We've all tried it. Solomon's words are true. They're supported by our own evidences. Why not make today the day that you say, Lord, I'm in. I've tried it. It's Hebel. I want to come to know you. Would you pray with me? Oh, Jesus, um, we tried it. We tried buying things, going places, building things to satisfy our soul. Yeah, they're fun for a while. But then we find ourselves in situations where it's like, man, that just wasn't big enough. It wasn't nice enough. We want an upgrade. We want another upgrade. We thought the upgrade would satisfy until we had the upgrade and then we wanted another upgrade. Would you teach us now, God, that everything is Hebel without you? Lord, today, we see the truth in that. And if you're here today, and you've never put Jesus at the center of your life, like, and he is front and center, like he is reason for your life, never made a decision in your life to say, Lord, I want to bring you into my life. I want to make you the center of my life, God. And today, in the talk, you, you go, that resonates. I mean, I'm working really, really hard and trying to do, but gosh, nothing seems to satisfy. There's an invitation that God is making to you today. Right now, he's inviting you to have your soul satisfied while you're under the sun. Your soul can be satisfied in Him. It's a simple prayer you could say to Him. You could just say, God, come into my life. I want you to satisfy me. And say the truth, I've tried trying to find satisfaction in other things. It hasn't worked. So Jesus, invite you into my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. From this day forward, I want to follow you. Just tell him now, today, I will follow you. And if that is today, you will make a decision today to follow him for the rest of your life. Would you just lift your hand right where you are with everybody's eyes closed?
hand. I see your hand. Anyone else? I see your hand. I see your hand. I see your hand. There's hands all over. Keep your hand up. So I want you to pray this with me. Just say, Jesus. And everyone, you can pray this with me as well if you'd like. Just say, Jesus, I gave you my life today. Thank you for dying for me. This is important now. Thank you for creating me. I realize today I was created for a purpose. And that is you. Forgive me of my sin. Be my Lord. I'm yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we celebrate all the people in the room who made the decision today? So good. I saw your hands. Um, I saw your hands. Hey, at the end of service, we have an altar prayer team down front, and we would love to pray with you today. And so if you made a decision, if you lifted your hand, um, we encourage you. I just can't tell you how important it is. You come down, talk to one of our prayer teams. So if we have our prayer team, come now and um, just come on up. And if you need prayer today at all, maybe not just making a decision today, but you need prayer for something else, uh, marriage, finances, jobs, breakthroughs, healing, anything at all, don't leave the church without getting prayed for. If you need prayer today, uh, we would love to pray with you today. Uh, God bless you. Take care. And then we want to end this way. Before you head out, don't rush off too much. We're going to put a verse on the screen. And I want you to read this with me. We're going to do this each week. And um, I don't have time to share the story why, but uh, this is the blessing. And I want to read the blessing. And so let's all read it together if you would. You can look up at the screen. The Lord bless you and keep you. There you go. The Lord, yes, and be gracious to you. There you go. Okay, we're good. Amen, church. So glad you're here. Take care. God bless you. We'll see you next Sunday. Take care.